Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Sarah Kugelman, the founder and CEO of Skin Iceland. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So Sarah, walk us back a little bit. You were a longtime beauty industry executive when you started your brand. Um, How did you find your way to launching a brand like this in 2005? I think um, it really just came out of a personal passion. I was very interested in health and wellness way before it was trendy, um, mainly because of my own health issues. And I had been grappling a lot with stress and how it was affecting my health and also my skin. And I saw this trend happening in the industry towards brands that were more natural and wellness oriented. And I thought there was a very interesting connection between stress and skin and this new trend that was coming. And so I felt excited about pursuing that and investigating that. So I left my corporate job to research that, which I ended up doing for a year and a half. How is that different from what you were seeing in the market at that time? It didn't seem like other beauty products were really talking about that or thinking about that or kind of being a solve. Yeah, no, they weren't at all. I mean, it was more brands like Origins or Veda that were talking about natural ingredients and being pure, which I think was sort of the first generation in that wellness category. But nobody was really talking about lifestyle. And so what did you think you could bring to the market? I thought that I could bring a dialogue to the market um, and something, you know, like a skincare line that wasn't just this white clinical sort of cold option. It was something that was more emotional and that people could really forge an emotional connection with and go to the shelf. And, you know, we have a sense of humor about our product. So even though it was a serious subject, people could sort of make fun of themselves and laugh about it, um, but then also sort of dig a little bit deeper and talk about, um, you know, what's causing my stress? How do I um, deal with my stress? Like, what is it doing to my body? How is it affecting my skin? And it's turned out to be such an effective tool to use skincare to address wellness issues. So in 2005, you know, that wasn't necessarily as common as what it, how it is today. So how were you talking to your customer and who did you think your customer was? There was a lot of education um, that went on at that time. So we really had to ex- say to the customer, are you stressed? This is what stress is. It's, you know, ha- getting caught in traffic, having problems with, you know, paying your bills. You know, we had to sort of explain it, what, what it was. And then we would say, do you notice differences in your skin? not just aging or irritation, but do you notice that your skin's out of balance or not acting the way it normally does or, you know, and then we would like tie it together and make the link. So there was a ton of education information that had to go along with explaining the line, whereas now we, we really don't have to do that as much. It's people really understand it and, and get it right away. And there's a lot of people having a similar kind of conversation. Did you find back then that there was a certain type of woman who was coming to buy your products and who was she? Well, we thought initially that it was going to be this urban woman and we thought, well, maybe it'll just be New York and LA and nobody else will get it. But when I first um, launched the line, we were at Sephora and we, um, one of the things that Sephora wanted to do was to see if the line resonated in more than just New York and LA. So they put us in all these markets in the middle of the country, like Kansas and Oklahoma. And all of a sudden the the business really took off in those markets. And we started to realize, you know what, that woman who's stressed, first of all, it's not just women. Second of all, um, women are stressed everywhere and people are stressed everywhere. And 
it's not just because you live in a big city, but there's stressors, you know, being on your phone all the time, you know, which you can have no matter where you are. So that was a big sort of aha moment at the beginning of the, the brand. You mentioned Sephora a second ago. You know, you started your business there. You launched there in 2005 and you were there for five years. Could you talk a little bit about that relationship and then, of course, the fallout from that relationship. Yeah. I mean, it was really exciting at first. Um, you know, it was exciting that they wanted to launch us, but we were definitely under the radar. We launched at a time when there were some other brands that were launching pretty um, high profile and big launches and in the window. And we were sort what of... What were those brands? <laughs> so that was like Borba, Freeze 24-7, Ghost Smile. We, we launched when all those brands launched, which was like, I feel like one of the early phases of indie brands. And we were like on one shelf on the bottom, you know, we had seven products at the time. So we were really like, like the stepchild and we sort of came out of left field and, and Sephora told us, oh, we're only going to put you on t in 10 stores and then we'll see how it goes for a year and then we'll determine. But it was like 10 stores and then right away it was another 10, another 10. By the end of the first year, I think we were in something like 60 stores. And so it was very exciting. We were seeing the brand grow really quickly. Sephora was super supportive. Um, but as a small brand, you know, at the time it was just me. I think I had maybe one other person working with me. It was all consuming. And so, you know, I think what happened is we got consumed by this you know, sort of giant, it was a little bit like David and Goliath, um, where we were trying to service this huge beast that needed to be fed. And, um, and so five years of just focusing on that, all the resources going behind that and kind of taking that to a place where we thought it could build awareness. And that part was the, I would say, the positive side of the relationship. And so then what happened in 2010? Why, um, when you were, when Sephora was responsible for about 80% of your business, did, was there a mutual exit? So it was definitely not mutual. Um, <laughs> Maybe that was a nice way of putting it. I think um, that's like one of the moments that you fear when you have a business is that your number one retailer is going to come to you and say, you know, we don't want you anymore. It's like being on a date with somebody you really like and them not wanting to go out with you again. Um, and so I, I definitely wondered at that point if we were going to survive. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, we got caught up in a lot of things that were going on at Sephora at the time. The market had crashed. Um, so there was a huge economic downturn that Sephora was grappling with. So um, I think... On the one hand, there were a lot of big brands that initially didn't want to be at Sephora that now needed the distribution. And so we couldn't compete with them on a dollars per square foot basis, let's say. So we were dealing with that pressure, the pressure from the market fallout, and also the fact that Sephora was kind of grappling at the time with skincare. Um, they were leaders in color and fragrance and they were trying to figure out skincare. And I don't think they'd figured out the natural skincare segment yet. And we sort of got caught in that transition time. So they basically came, we were tiny brand and we were natural and they didn't know what to do with natural. And they had all these big brands coming in like Clinique and Lancome. And so they said, you know, even though you've been growing really, really fast, you know, we don't think you're big enough to stay. And so um, that was definitely a really scary moment for me. It sounds like in a lot of ways, some of the things that you're talking about are parallel to what's going on right now. 
Could you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a small brand? And, you know, when you go into a major retailer, whether it's a Sephora or Ulta or Target or even Walmart, you know, what that relationship looks like, because, you know, there's so many indie brands are launching today. But necessarily, even if they're growing, they may not have the power to sustain those relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to have influence and control over your business when you're dealing with a retailer that's so big and so powerful and so influential. I mean, you can't say like, oh, I don't I don't want to participate in this program or I, I want this table. And, you know, they say, no, you can't have that. Well, th- there's nothing you can do. So you basically are completely at the whim of... Um, how they want to nurture your business or not. And you don't really have a lot of control over what you can do. I mean, I think brands in a certain sense have more control now because they're social media. So if you have an audience and you have already built in customer, then you have some influence and you can bring that customer with you to Sephora. But at maybe time, though, right? maybe, right? Like you don't know. Um, but at that time, like there wasn't social media. So we didn't even have that um, behind us. So how did you go about rebuilding that distribution? How many stores was it at the time? Um, we were in all stores. So over time. about uh, over 200. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I was going to say too, like, I think a lot of brands jumping into the market, especially now, see like these huge successes like of Drunk Elephant or Atacha and everybody thinks that's going to be them. And I don't think that people really can see like how hard that is and how unusual that is and how much work goes into getting to that place. So today, you know, many emerging brands or many indie brands are lured by these exclusive relationships and they get locked into these terms. So what would your advice be today and how did you kind of rebuild your business from being 80% of Sephora and then not having that? Well, I mean, one of the things that we did, and this would be my probably biggest piece of advice is to diversify that risk by launching international distribution. Because even if you have an exclusive relationship, it's usually just exclusive in this country. And then you can sort of balance the risk by expanding into key markets internationally. Um, And at the time I went through what I, when I went through the exit with Sephora, I, um, I had another brand founder say to me that they had like built a tremendous business internationally. And it was something that I should really look at. um, And that was really helpful. And that's what we did. So were you in any international markets prior? Uh, I think I don't think we were at that time. And that's when I really started looking into which markets, which retailers and really aggressively going after that. And where were those countries or regions? So we looked at English speaking countries first. So I was looking really at the UK, Canada and Australia. And around 2011, I was approached by a gentleman that I'd worked with at Estee Lauder, um, who is just a brilliant man. Um, And he was working with Marks and Spencer at the time. They just hired him to sort of re-envision their beauty concept. And he came to me and he said, I think that you would be a great brand for their concept. Um, They're looking for brands that combine nature and science and are from all different places in the world. And so he presented our brand and we ended up being accepted um, as one of the first 22 brands in that concept. And that was sort of the beginning of expanding and into, you know, what our international strategy became. And here in the U.S., it wasn't until 2014 that you went into Ulta, correct? Kind of really making up the bulk or lion's share of those stores. So what were you doing in the U.S. at the time? 
it, for those four years. Yeah. Well, it was like holding on for dear life. I have to say it was a little bit of like one day at a time, one foot in front of the other. And we were, you know, doing a little bit, you know, skiniceland.com and we had some online um, businesses that we were um, retailers that we were working with and we were developing the Marks and Spencer business. And, you know, I felt if we could be successful there and create sort of this um, case study of like where we do well and how we do well and the things that that contribute to our success, then we can bring that case study back to the U.S. and present it to a retailer like an Ulta, which is what we did. And I called them and called them and called them. And, you know, Maureen Kelly used to say to me from Tarte, um, get used to rejection, like get used to hearing the word no, because you're going to hear no a million times, but just never give up. I heard no so many times from Ulta, but I just kept trying and trying. And one day they said, yes, come in for a meeting. And that was sort of the beginning of like a really amazing relationship. And this was at a time when Ulta necessarily wasn't perceived as a prestige player. Right. So why were they attractive to you when you had kind of had this very affluent luxury customer at Sephora? Maybe someone could argue the same with Marks and Spencer. Yeah. What were you seeing that others weren't? It's a very good question. I became very interested in that time in looking and researching and studying beauty brands that had had that inflection point and what it was that created that inflection point. And so I was looking at brands like Bare Essentials or, you know, Bare Minerals or um, Benefit or brands that were, or Philosophy that were small and then all of a sudden exploded. And typically in the lifespan of those brands, they had been first with a channel of distribution that was sort of uncharted waters. And so I looked around and I said, what's going to be the next frontier? Like, what's going to be the next distribution channel that's going to create that inflection point for brands? And I thought it was Ulta because I felt like, how long can Sephora just be the only player in town? There's obviously a huge market opportunity. Other businesses are going to want to capitalize on that market opportunity. And for me, it, it was obvious that Ulta was the most logical business to you know, start start to maybe um, nip at their heels. And so um, luckily I was right. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, you know, for us as a small brand too, like better to get in early um, because we probably won't be able to get in there in two years. And I think that was like right on the money. So we luckily got in there. They were testing a bunch of brands. We did really well as a test. We were online only. Um, and ironically, they, they, in our first meeting, they said, you know, we want to do some kind of launch with you. And then they came back and said it was an online only launch. And I said, no. And somebody that I was working with at the time said, you better do this. Like, do not say no. And so I said, okay, okay. I changed my mind. I said, okay. And um, the test was really successful. And it was through that test that they then launched us in stores the next year. So you guys hit 20 million in retail sales in 2019. And that was a 50% bump from last year. I mean, was Ulta really a driver in that? Or what were the drivers that kind of got you to that point? Yeah. I mean, Ulta was certainly a key driver in that. Um, for one thing, we rolled out to an additional 200 stores last year. How um, many are you in total? So we're in 800 total with our full line. And then we have um, our top selling eye gels are in the full distribution of 1,200 stores. Um, and we have a new product launching in a few weeks that's also going to full distribution. Um, with Ulta exclusively? With uh, Yes, with Ulta exclusively to okay, start. we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Ulta was a really key driver, and we um, 
ran the year at about a 40% comp as well. So we, um, it's been just an incredibly strong business for us and we're really excited about it. And then our D2C business has been really uh, strong as well, like our Skin Iceland business. We also um, sell on Amazon. That's a very strong business for us. And I'm also a believer in Amazon, although I know not everybody is. And, um, and then our international played a real role in our growth as well. So lots of questions for you, Sarah. So going back to that time period, you know, that 2014, 2015 period, you know, you were betting on Ulta, right? But at the same time, there was this other thing happening in the market. Everyone was going rushing to the D2C side of things. Why didn't you do that? I know that D2C represents a third about, about a third of your business and about a third of your sales. But like, why weren't you rushing to be like a direct-to-consumer only channel when you had these, you know, necessarily kind of pitfalls with U.S. retailers in the past? Um, I mean, I, th- I think because of my background in digital, um, you know, I was keenly aware of the fact that it takes investment to grow that business just like any any business and beauty. I mean, whether you're offline or online, like it requires a big commitment and investment um, and understanding how to navigate that business. So it wasn't um, a lot of people said to me at the time, just go online, like just like grow your D2C business. But I mean, it's just not that easy. Like there's um, a lot of things you need to do in order to make that happen. And so with limited resources, we had to determine like where we were really going to pivot and sort of um, put our attention and our resources. And we were already really sort of a bricks and mortar brand. um, And it would have taken a lot of change. We would have had to really change our business model at that time to just really go after D2C. So I really kind of put my money on Ulta. And um, and I, I knew what Sephora had done for our business. They were incredible at building brand awareness, incredible at sort of propelling us onto the radar in the beauty industry. And I know that knew that Ulta could do that too. And then we could always do the D2C after, which is kind of what we're doing now. How do you think that emerging brands today have the power that maybe you didn't have in 2010 in the sense that, you know, being able to stipulate whether you're online or in store or what your exclusive strategy is going to be? Because, you know, so many retailers today, I mean, look at what happened to Barney's New York, right? You know, they promised these exclusive relationships and traded on them. And then that retailer is out of business. So is there any power from the emerging beauty brand themselves, or can they establish that? Well, I think there's two things in particular. I think one is that a lot of people are developing themselves as influencers first and developing a following and a voice and a vision and a and a customer before they're even launching a line or going to a retailer with a line. So they're already going with a huge customer base. Like for us, we had to go into the retailer and feed off the traffic that was already coming in there, um, let alone try to drive new traffic into the stores. Now, brands that already have a following are launching and they're bringing the customer with them. So that's like a win for the brand, a win for the retailer. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's just a lot more money out there in the PE world. So small brands that um, don't have a lot of resources but are showing a lot of early traction are able to attract that money and then quickly explode out their business. It wasn't like that for us. Um, And there wasn't the same kind of... um, sort of equation in the market at the time either. Like, you know, show that initial traction, raise the money, explode it out, you know, get bought. Like, that's a newer thing. So how does a brand like yours, you know, who's 14 years, 
15 years old compete today with those brands that are doing that, you know, that have an influencer face or may be able to acquire money much faster um, than, you know, someone who may not be front and center the way that a Tiffany Masterson is. Yeah. I mean, I think um, our challenge has been, you know, we, we do hear from people in the industry, like, how come you've been around for 14 years? And, you know, and you haven't done this or that. But I think at the end of the day, what I'm finding is that um, there's sort of two things that I'm, I'm saying for us, which is that um, a lot of the brands that are showing that early traction are brands that are selling in. So they're, they're, it's pipeline that people are seeing. So, you mean product launches? Yeah, product launch. It's like all new stuff that's going into uh, into retailers. It's not the repurchase. We have like a solid loyal customer that's been repurchasing for, from us for years. Um, and What that, is that repeat purchase rate? Can you tell me, Sarah? Um, you know, I don't know that I have an exact number for you because it depends on which channel of distribution. And we, we actually don't get that information from a lot of our retailers. So we don't always know what that is. Um, but... Um, you know, like we know in our D2C business. But so that is a real strength to a business that is like a core ongoing business versus a brand that's just like the new shiny thing. So for one thing, we have a lot of stability in our business. The second thing is that, you know, when you have a business that's a certain size and still growing at a certain rate and is profitable, it's a very attractive proposition. Um, And so, you know, I think that's a strength you have, whether you've been in the market for two years or 15 years. So, um, you know, those are those are two like business staples that are, you know, you can't argue with. So does that mean that more investment opportunities are also coming your way in that sense? I mean, we're definitely getting our fair share of inquiries, I'll say. And are you interested in that? I mean, we're definitely thinking about it. I mean, I I think it gets harder and harder every year to compete with brands that are raising money when we're not. Um, You bootstrapped your business, correct? Yeah, we did. Um, so I think, you know, it's definitely something that we, um, are seriously considering. So when you think about priorities and going into 2020, you mentioned Amazon a second ago, um, which I'm interested to hear more about, but you know, what are the priorities for the company? What are you thinking about? Especially as there are only a few ways to grow a business, you know, it's more product, more doors, more channels. So what are you thinking? I mean, we don't want to be everywhere and just be scattered um, and splintering all of our resources. So we're really trying to focus on like we have a tier one of priorities and then we have a tier two of priorities. And, you know, our tier one is really like our core businesses um, that I mentioned before, you know, Ulta obviously is, is, you know, front and center. Um, And then there's some international opportunities that we think are really huge. Like we entered China last year and we see that being just a huge huge opportunity for the brand. Um, And, you know, we continue to grow, um, even though we exited Sephora US, we're at Sephora Canada and Asia, and those are tremendous businesses for us with tremendous um, potential right now. So there's a few international businesses that that have a ton of momentum and growth potential. um, And we're looking at a few other new things for this year, but we're trying to keep it very Um, strategic and narrow. So like I said, we're not everywhere all at once, but that we're like really focusing and um, focusing in on our resources, both our people resources and our financial resources. You sound very measured about all of this, Sarah. I have to admit that, you know, a lot of other people on this podcast have kind of come in and talked about, you know, all the um, bells and whistles there are in beauty right now from influencers to customer rising customer acquisition costs, you know, all of those things. And 
I'm wondering how, what's your take then from a marketing perspective? How are you, you know, gaining awareness? How are you gaining traction in the larger space when there's so much noise? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously like brands that have a ton of money can like throw it at influencers and take them on trips and get them to post. But we're also seeing that it's, that's not always the best return. Like we've done both. We've done all kinds of organic related programs with influencers. And then we've also tried paying influencers. And I have to say a lot of the things that we've done organically have shown much better results. So I think it's about being smart and resourceful. I mean, one of the things that I did from a marketing perspective really early on was forge relationships with makeup artists. And so we've built a really strong group of makeup artist ambassadors that use our products. And that has been a huge viral um, sort of, momentum with the brand and that has also created a big celebrity following for us and so we've had a lot of celebrities post just organically with the product because they love their makeup artists because they think the product is really fun and visual and that has been something that has really really propelled our brand um and um you know and that is sort of um, been our focus and our strategy when all these other brands have been competing for the same influencers we've been very um, sort of focused on this makeup artist strategy. Are you looking at any other performance marketing tactics? You know, I have to go back to Amazon a second ago, you know, all the things that they're doing, you know, whether it's through OTT or, yep. you know, branded packages. Yes. Um, what's going on with that business? You know, I think we're getting smarter and better all the time as as we learn. I mean, that's like one um, benefit of being in the market for a couple of years. <laughs> um, but we are, you know, really getting pretty deep into performance marketing right now and sort of doing the gamut, whether it's search or digital ads, um, you know, social ads, um, all of that. And, you know, that's really driving our Amazon business, our D2C business. And, um, and we're testing various things with influencers and collaborations. We've done a lot of um, co-branded collaborations, both online and product collaborations. So we're looking at doing more of those. Those have been really successful for us. Um, and so um, there's a lot of exciting things that we're looking at diving a little bit deeper into this year. What about um, when you talked about channels a second ago, you mentioned that, you know, kind of getting there first, you know, whether it was the benefits of the world or the philosophies of the world, they got to a retailer or a distribution channel first. Do you see that as a way of doing that with Amazon? Because, you know, there's been so many holdouts still within Prestige. Um, their luxury beauty shop does not necessarily compare to what you're seeing at some of the other retailers. It's true. So what are you thinking? Yeah, there? I mean, I, I mean, I think that Amazon has basically owned every vertical that it's gone after and it's seriously going after beauty and the amount of business we have done with them over the last three years has grown so dramatically. And I can say just as a very, um, you know, from one year to the next. So three years ago, our our Marks and Spencer business was double the size of Amazon. And in one year, Amazon was double the size of Marks and Spencer. So the power of that and just the sheer um, volume of that is something that you have to consider as a business owner. I mean, you can't just ignore it and say, I'm not going to go there because it might um, challenge my the image or it um, because there's discounting. or You've got to work with it and figure it out because they're not going away. They're going to be a major player in this segment. And I think anybody who's just sort of saying, I'm not going to play in that playground with them is just kidding themselves. A lot of um, you mentioned the kind of prestige factor and kind of people assuming appearances about Amazon or having a negative connotation in that regard. How does your 
How does that impact maybe your own D2C business? Are you seeing, you know, fallout there because of your Amazon business or even your Ulta business? Because obviously they have a very strong D2C um, channel as well. I mean, how are you getting everyone to play in that same playground happily? Well, I think that is the big question. Like, how do you have a successful D2C business and also a successful Amazon business? Um, It's not easy. And, I, you know, we're definitely figuring that out. I think we have some ideas about how to do exclusive things on our own website. And um, and that sort of goes back to like doing co-branded collaborations or doing special packaging or special launches and special offers. So I think you have to like, you know, just like with a retailer, if you're an Ulta and Sephora, you've got to do maybe two separate assortments, two separate promo calendars. It's the same thing with D2C and Amazon. You got to approach it, I think, with the same headset. A lot of brands today, a lot of founders today think they are going to be the next big acquiry, you know, whether it's a Tatcha, whether it's a Drunk Elephant, whether it's an Elemis, you know, what are the right expectations to have in this industry right now when we are maybe facing another recession coming when there might be a downturn in the market? You know, the same risk factors 10 years ago are, are back. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, it's focusing on your growth rate and profitability. I think if you're profitable, you can weather any storm. Um, and so, um, I think the brands that are investing in growth and not paying attention to bottom to the bottom line are going to be hit really hard if there's a downturn in the market, but the brands that are able to sustain and not only have money in the bank, but are also, um, you know, making money on the bottom line are, are here to stay. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great having you. Thank you. So nice to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.